Jesse, the Russian nesting dolls of murder within murder was absolutely nuts last week. What do you got for me this week? A sadistic killer couple goes on a rampage that crosses three states and results in the rape, torture, and murder of 10 people between 1978 and 1980. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder. This week is a little bit different. So instead of the reminders up front, we'll come back to our socials, etc., on the back end. So on Love Murder, I usually introduce the show by saying it's where human interest and true crime meet. All of our previous episodes, 12, because we're on unlucky number 13 or lucky number 13. Yeah. So for number 13, we are doing something a little bit different and we are kind of veering more into the more traditional true crime vein. So the story I'm about to tell you is about a husband and wife serial killer duo named Charlene and Gerald Gallego. They're better known as the sex slave or love slave murderers. Over a 26-month period between 1978 and 1980, the pair went on a reign of terror in three states that included kidnapping, sexual assault, torture, and murder. It was the couple's sex slave fantasies that resulted in the deaths of nine women, six of whom were only in their teens, one Oof. man and one unborn child. Ooh. Yeah. So this is a bloody, gruesome, horrifying ride and definitely a deviation from some of our standard love triangle gone wrong fare. So please also consider this your trigger warning because there will be uh, molestation, sexual assault. I very briefly touch on a lot of the most more gnarly stuff. Um, you won't hear a lot about the exact torture, but there will be mentions of those things. So if you are sensitive, this might not be the episode for you. I think a lot of what Andy and I really find interesting about some of the stories we cover is, you know, kind of what we come back to, which is Anyone can find themselves in a bad relationship, and and hopefully we've all listened to that voice inside of ourselves at some point that says, hey, you got to get out of this. This is not a healthy situation for you, you know, Andy? Uh, get out now, yes. Exactly. So this is like a, a show about what happens when you don't listen to that voice and when you ignore the red flags. And I think what's scarier about a serial killer episode is that, you know, we think anyone can end up in a bad relationship and get killed, but this is like anyone could end up a victim to somebody deranged like some of these people are, you know? So where is the love in this story? Because usually <laughs> love murder <laughs> has a good love story or a really bad one, probably. Maybe between the couple? Yeah, kind of. This is some sort of twisted love. And I definitely think we're also going to talk about the lack of love that creates a serial killer. Yep. Um, you know, there's a big debate always about nature and nurture and what creates a serial killer. And I think in this story, you'll see a lot of both. <laughs> you will see how actually it's kind of nature and nurture double teaming a, an individual human with some really bad set of circumstances in life that can cause this sort of behavior and also a, a lack of nurturing love 
that allows a human to grow this way, you know? And of course, yeah, going back to Charlene and Gerald, there was a hold on them there. Gerald didn't kill before Charlene came to his life. And Charlene had actually a great upbringing, which we'll get into. So it didn't seem like she had any murderous intentions before or after Gerald. Some people are just really toxic combinations. And it's okay if you're like toxic, meaning you've, you know, fight on social media. <laughs> but how about not toxic as far as uh, we kill people? For fun, you know? Yeah, that, that would be a that'd be a plus. <laughs> yeah. So are you ready for our very first serial killing couple story? I think so. All right. So I'm gonna start the story with a little background on Gerald's father, which will definitely add some points to the nature column of the making of a violent killer. Gerald Gallego Sr. was only 19 and behind bars when Gerald Jr. was born on July 17, 1946. He was serving time in California's San Quentin prison for auto theft and writing bad checks. He was paroled in 1949 after serving three years, but was put back in jail almost immediately for armed robbery in 1950. By the time he was let out again in 1953, he broke parole and fled from California to Mississippi. While there, he killed a police officer and was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. However, in 1954, Gallego and another inmate escaped from jail while they were awaiting execution. In the process of the escape, Gallego threw blinding acid disinfectant into the eyes of the jailer, Jack Landrum, and beat him nearly to death, which is terrible. That guy was just doing his job, you know? Gallego was recaptured on the same day that Jack succumbed to his injuries and died. On March 3rd, 1955, Gerald Albert Gallego, now a convicted murderer of two lawmen, became the very first person executed in Mississippi's Parchman Penitentiary's new gas chamber, which had replaced the electric chair. So uh, I didn't know this, but apparently the gas chamber is the absolute worst way to go. It's torturous. I feel like I remember hearing about that when we were Mm -hmm. studying the Holocaust and everything about how that was just that. Absolutely the most ultimate, brutal, horrid. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this guy was kind of a, a bad apple, so. Um, how old know. was – so was Gerald born already during um, He was eight this? years old when he was executed. Got so it. between okay. – it was eight years between when um, Gerald was born while his father was only 19 in prison and then when his father was executed. Got it. So though Elder and younger Gerald's ended up having quite a bit in common later on, the father and son pair never met in life. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely falls down on the nature side of things because he actually had nothing to do with Gerald Jr.'s growing up. Did he know about all of this though as a young boy? I think so. Um, I'm not like sure. It has to... to have psychological ramifications. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. And we're going to talk about Gerald's upbringing now, and it it wasn't improved. It wasn't like because his father wasn't in his life, he had a yeah. cakewalk here. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about Gerald's upbringing now that we know his father was executed when he was only eight years old. His upbringing was, in a word, shitty. Oh, if no. you could write a recipe for a serial killer, this is how you'd measure it. Beyond just his biological father, he came from a long line of violent career criminals and sex offenders on both sides of his family. Oh, no. 
Yeah, he had the deck stacked against him, this kid. His mother was a neglectful and cold sex worker who remarried twice to violent, abusive alcoholics. Oh, God. Yeah. So it's unclear whether Gerald was sexually abused as well as the blood-curdling physical abuse he suffered, but it seems very likely. Um, He didn't talk about that part, obviously. Um, but given his history and, and some of the things he gets in trouble for when he's younger, it would definitely point to childhood sexual abuse. His criminal record began at the tender age of six and included everything from the benign running away to the increasingly problematic crimes of sex offenses and burglary. At only age 12, he was placed on probation by the juvenile authorities for burglary and later charged with committing lewd and lascivious acts to a six-year-old girl. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I and feel like you wouldn't know how to do that to a, a, a 12-year-old probably wouldn't target a six-year-old that way unless if something they were normal. happened to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This landed him his first stint in juvenile hall, and he would spend the formative years of his life getting paroled or escaping, reoffending, getting put back away in various juvenile penitentiaries, adult jails, or even once to a psychiatric facility. A probation officer report once concluded, his social traits were all listed as failures. He currently typifies a hard-shelled young man who evidenced little motivation for improvement, remorsefulness, or insight. So he was just, I mean, he was like screwed on arrival, essentially. So horrible. Mm -hmm. By the time he met Charlene when he was 32, he had been arrested no less than 23 times. Somehow, despite all this time spent on the inside, Gerald managed to get married a whopping seven times. Stop. You always find these people. <laughs> I know. I just say <laughs> the one thing that almost everybody on Love Murder has in common is they get married a lot, fast, and young. <laughs> so wild. I like I've mm-hmm. never heard about this, all of this before we started doing this. And now like, every – I don't think we've had a, a like a single person who's married only once ever. No. No. <laughs> maybe maybe the axe murderer because they yeah, were like they uber were, religious. They were very religious, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that that was fitting. They got married after the axe murderer again, you know. Yeah. But yeah, that guy got married like three times I think. But um, yeah, this is crazy. So he was a moderately good-looking sociopath who knew exactly how to charm a woman into letting her guard down. He was a well-muscled 5'7", with thick, dark hair, and a manly confidence. 5'7"? Yes, he wasn't wasn't a big guy, but he was described as, like, fairly muscular. Um, And he looks like the most evil grown-up karate kid. Like, he kind of looks like Ralph Macchio. Oh, God. I know, which is hard because I almost didn't want to say it because Ralph Macchio looks so nice, but this guy's like a deranged version. But you can also see if you imagine like Ralph Macchio with that like thick mop of hair and those big brown eyes, like you can see how a woman might be tricked into thinking he's a little bit more innocent than he is, you know? I guess, are they both Italian? That makes sense why they're a little bit shorter too. Exactly. Yeah. That's uh, that's coming from Andy, our resident Italian. <laughs> She's allowed to although say that. I, although I'm five eight and a half. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where did you get that from? The Croatian side? I don't know. I think so. It must have been. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is what some of his ex girlfriends and wives said about him. 
He was the type of guy any girl would want, claimed one ex-girlfriend. Other women described him as Mr. Macho. Women were known to phone him regularly during his bartending days in Sacramento, and he would rate them number one girl, number two girl, etc. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. A former wife admitted he's not that good looking, but he can sure make a woman feel like a woman. He has that type of magnetism. Another ex-wife recalled a far darker side to Gallego, labeling him a perverted psychosexual maniac. Ooh. She went on to say it was like being in bed with a rabid Tasmanian devil. Rabid Tasmanian I know. devil. Ugh. God, that, that sounds bad. Like that does not sound Foaming at the mouth? Like, uh-huh. Ugh. Whose only interests in sex were sodomy, fellatio, and cunnilingus in that order. Woof. Like every time? I guess so. So sodomy to fellatio every time? That, that feels like not the right order. No, it feels dirty. Yeah, it feels really dirty. But I think that's a lot of what he likes. I think he likes that punishment. Yeah. Part of it or the humiliation. Yep, yeah, exactly. Oh, and also my sources. I <laughs> Our primary text is The Sex Slave Murders by R. Barry Flowers. There was also a episode of Wicked Attraction on Investigation Discovery called Twisted Twosome that I used. And actually the author, R. Barry Flowers, from this book was on the show, which was kind of cool. That is cool. Yeah. And then I also um, did a little research on Reddit and there was one person, his name was Scott from Modesto, who kind of compiled um, a list of like five to eight different articles and kind of did a rundown of all the crimes and the victims and the whole thing. So that was also very helpful. So thank you, Reddit, for that. All right, going back to Gerald. He was sexually demanding and physically abusive in every single one of his marriages. The women also attested to emotional and financial abuse. His first marriage occurred in 1963 when his wife was 21 and he was only 16. Ooh, I think that that's was definitely the youngest we've had so far. Yeah, that was the next question I was going to ask you um, before you referenced the sources was like, obviously that one woman described him as a rabid Tasmanian devil, but I was curious if it was like that in every relationship or not. And if all the spouses spoke up about it, because I feel like a lot of women probably, especially in that time, would be ashamed of speaking about it. But I don't think that they spoke of it until after he was convicted of these crimes. I'm pretty sure that they didn't speak of it Got while it. it was happening. I think that a lot of them, as you'll see when we run down how long he was married each time, thankfully got out pretty quickly, which is great. But I do think that they probably – nobody talked to each other. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody reported him to the police or anything until later on when this became a huge story and reporters, reporters started digging up his exes and asking for comments. And I think this is when some women like spoke out about it. And some women were like, God, I don't even want to talk about it. You know, like I don't even want to get back into the abuse I, I suffered at his hands, you know. In April of 1964, their daughter Krista was born. Shortly after her birth, Gerald began beating his wife, not just with his fists, but also using a hammer. Beating her with a hammer. Uh-huh. Shortly after she gave birth to his child. Wow. So little is known about this unfortunate first wife. She was one of the people that did not speak to reporters or want any of this notoriety. But somehow Gerald won custody of Krista in the divorce and sent her to live with his mother, which doesn't seem like such a great idea either because 
his mother was a terrible mother when she was raising him. So I yeah. don't think we're going to have better results with her granddaughter. The vicious custody fight probably had two disturbing motivations for Gerald. One, the desire to damage his ex at any cost. So Ugh. by fighting to get Krista was not so much about wanting to raise Krista, but about hurting her, you yep. know? And two, like even darker and more disturbing, the ability to have a young victim completely dependent upon Gerald to abuse. Yeah, that's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Gerald would go on to sexually abuse his daughter from the age of six to 14. And this will end up factoring more greatly into the story in a little bit, but it's absolutely tragic and horrifying for that poor girl. I mean, imagine if this happened now. I feel like people would girl to girl, like woman to woman, reach out on Facebook and they'd be like, yo, I saw you were just in this new relationship with this guy. Just be careful. Heads up. 100%. I think it's much harder for abusers to get away with doing what they do in this day and age. And I think that they're the reason they do is that there's still a lot of people that don't want to believe that or are already like ensnared by somebody. Yeah. I remember there was one guy I dated and yeah. he told me that he didn't have a Facebook or a social media. And I think it was because he didn't want us to be in a relationship or he didn't want anything to be like known or else his ex-girlfriends would have contacted me. Yeah. And eventually one of the girls he was cheating on me with did find me even though I wasn't connected to him on Facebook. So somehow she found me anyway. But like definitely there's ways around it. But I think especially back then, women were just happy to have survived and gone through it. And somebody could just disappear. They moved to like, you know, the next state and you don't, you're not. Yeah, exactly. Marriage number two to a 24-year-old West Sacramento waitress in 1966 only lasted 26 days before he chased her around the house with a knife and threatened her life. Oh, my God. Yeah, this guy is seriously bad news. Like, we have joked around about some of the scumbags that have been on the show, and they're just really just gross, terrible people. But this guy is psychotic, dangerous, like, deranged, you know? Whoa. Yep. Gallego's third wife, a laundry worker, found it almost too painful to talk about. I've blocked all of that out for years, she said. It's such a horrible memory. They had wed on October 14th, 1967. She said, he kept beating me. I couldn't take it. He became extremely cruel. This marriage, like his second, lasted only a month, thankfully for her. Wow. Marriage number four occurred in Reno in 1969 to a pregnant 19-year-old woman named Harriet. Her father said that he was a real Jekyll and Hyde. During the courtship, he was what the father considered a nice boy, and the parents actually liked him. 19 days into the marriage, he showed his true colors, and the family was horrified. They were divorced almost immediately after that. Luckily, he never had contact with his second baby daughter. As far as author R. Barry Flowers knew, the now grown-up woman still does not know who her real biological father is. Good. Good for her. I hope she never finds out. So she didn't endure any sort of like vicious beating. No, I think that she was she was only 19. I think that she was still living with her parents for a lot of the relationship. Okay. And so um, when he did assault her, I think it happened like in front of her parents or something. So her parents were like, yeah, we're getting you out of this one. So their relationship lasted even like less than a month, I believe, because her parents helped her break free of it. Okay. And I think it it sounds like her parents helped her raise the baby who has no knowledge of who this guy is. Good. 
Gerald married for a fifth time while he was out on parole in 1974. That marriage to another 19-year-old uh, laundry worker lasted almost three years. And I don't actually know what she went through during that time period. It looks like she wasn't interviewed for this. Whoa. Three years sounds like a really long time to be with this guy unless he was in jail the whole time, which I hope he was. Well, yeah, and I feel like everyone else's track records for like a month. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. He separated from her in August of 1977. By the time he made Charlene his sixth wife, his divorce from the fifth was still two months away from being finalized. So we do officially have a new record because this was negative two months. He married Charlene when he was two months away from his fifth divorce being finalized. So it was he only married six times then? He gets married again to Charlene. Yeah, yeah, you'll see. It comes up in the story. Wow. So technically, wow. he's married. He has seven weddings. He has seven marriages. Yeah. I think that is a love murder record than getting married while you're still married to someone yeah. else. I think he was worried about the legality of the last first wedding. One. Yeah, of the first wedding to Charlene, his fifth one. <laughs> no, that was his sixth. Six. Man, it's hard to keep track of. Yeah. <laughs> so he does end up getting married to Charlene again. So let's talk about unlucky oh, woman God. who would become wife number six and seven, <laughs> Charlene Williams. She was definitely unlucky number seven. Let's just say oh, that. Oh, unlucky in love. Uh, Charlene couldn't have had a more different upbringing than Gerald. She was born October 19th, 1956, so 10 years younger than Gerald, the beloved blonde only child of an upper middle class Sacramento family. Her early years showed insane promise. An unusually high IQ placed her in a gifted program in sixth grade, and early proficiency in violin suggested she might have a future at Juilliard. Oh, it my was God. Yeah, she also had everything. Her father was an executive at a supermarket chain. Um, her, her parents, like, belonged to the country club. I mean, they were a totally different echelon. She never suffered any abuse growing up. She had, like... She was, I mean, if anything, they damaged her by spoiling her. She got whatever she wanted. She was completely enabled constantly. So she's like, I mean, it's the, it's a stark contrast to what Gerald went through. It was not until she hit high school that changes began to occur to her personality, habits, and her potential. She developed quite the interest in sex, drugs, and rebellion. And though she was once at the very top of her class, she managed to almost barely graduate high school. Wow. So she just was like, I'm not into this anymore. Charlene was spoiled and coddled by her father, who upon her graduation, which was barely achieved, bought her a brand new Oldsmobile and invested $15,000 in a retail store that she called the Dingaling Shop, where she sold plants, macrame, and knickknacks. So... In the book, they say, yeah, I know, <laughs> spent $15,000 on that shop. Uh-huh. And so I don't know if he had already adjusted for inflation when he wrote the book. Because $15,000 seems like a lot in today's money. And so I looked it up just to because I was curious to see what it would be like in, you know, 1970s money. And it was like almost 80 grand. So I hope it was adjusted for inflation when Arbery Flowers wrote this because if he put $79,000 of today's money into her dingling shop, I don't I don't even know what to say. <laughs> but he also bought her a brand new car. Yeah. And fixed her up in her own apartment. 
because she didn't want to go to college. Like, so she's like, I'd rather just run a store, which she almost immediately ran into the ground. It was open for less than a year. Well, I mean, she's selling macrame plants and what else? <laughs> macrame? <Yeah. laughs> plants and knickknacks. Man, she she missed out. Her true calling would have been Etsy. <laughs> That's so true. It's so true. That is if she wanted to have a job at all. If she could work. Yeah, exactly. So Charlene didn't have much more luck than Gerald in the marriage department. She celebrated her 18th birthday by marrying a 19-year-old soldier named Rick. One day later, Rick reported for army duty in Germany, and the marriage was annulled shortly thereafter by Rick's parents. So yeah, that didn't last very long. Um, marriage number two. <laughs> yeah. Can they do that? Parents can annul a marriage? They applied to petition on his behalf because he was in Germany. Whoa. But he said he actually tried to contact her. Like he, when he left for Germany, he was writing her letters and he was calling her and she just stopped answering him. And so eventually his parents actually filed for the annulment because – he was like, I don't know what's going on. I can't get a hold of her. I guess we're not together. And his parents were like, this is ridiculous. Like, just annul the marriage. Like, annul the marriage. It didn't exist. Like, this is what annulments are for, <laughs> you know? Wow. Mm-hmm. Marriage number two for Charlene took place in 1976 when she married a 24-year-old ex-soldier named Elliot, whom she had dated on and off since high school. The two had an extremely stormy nine-month marriage. Elliot blamed shared drug use and her interfering parents as the reasons behind the split. The two had experimented with PCP and LSD to increasingly- PCP? Yeah, that's angel dust, right? Yeah. What? Does anyone do angel dust anymore? I don't think so. I didn't know people in this- What was that, the 60s then? This is 70s. Wow. I feel like they were doing it a lot in the 70s and 80s. That seems like high PCP times. Uh, that's, cra- that's crazy. I think Charlene was trying anything and everything Got she it. could get her okay. hands on. Yeah. Yeah. And it did not go well. Apparently, while Charlene was high on either PCP or LSD, I'm not very clear, she attempted suicide by drinking pine salt. What? Yep. Apparently, her, you know, now ex-husband, Elliot, had to like smack it out of her hands while she was high because she was trying to chug pine salt. He said that to this day, he can't stand the smell of it, which okay. I would understand. Yeah, that I don't know if I'm going to be able to stand the smell of it now. About <laughs> it's also, like you would never expect this type of behavior just looking at her too. She was like very country club looking. She was only five feet tall, like barely. So she's tiny. She's not even 100 pounds. She was extremely petite, very blonde. And she had kind of a blue bloody, you know, Thing look going on. She reminds me of. Um, I was going to ask you if you had a celebrity look like. I do. I have one. It's it's a little random because she's definitely an actress that people know, but I don't know if they'll know her by her name. Her name's Amy Ryan, and I know her mostly as Holly from The Office. She's the one who ends up with Michael. Yeah, but she's also. Um, I that's where I first saw her. But then when we binged The Wire this summer, she's in oh, The Wire she's in as that well. Too? Mm-hmm. I think okay, that was like one of her first. She was uh, nominated for an Oscar for Gone Baby Gone as well. Oh, whoa. so yep. So she's been all over the place, but she looks a lot like her, like that very petite, skinny, thin boned thing. You know? Yeah, little like bony nose and 
Exactly. Vibe. In any case, marriage number two was officially over in May of 1977. And so Gerald was getting out of his marriage in August of 1977. And Charlene met her destiny in a seedy poker club in Sacramento in September of that same year when she crossed paths with Gerald. She was only a month shy of her 21st birthday and reportedly there to score some coke. Oh, classy. Classy. When she first met Gerald, she thought he was a very nice, clean-cut fellow. He appeared charming, attentive, handsome, and intriguing to her. As you'll come to find out, Gerald had a taste for very problematically young girls, and the petite Charlene fit the profile of a much younger woman with her tiny frame and girl-next-door looks. Mm -hmm. He promptly got her number and sent her a dozen long-stemmed roses the next day signed to a very sweet girl, Jerry. And just like that, as he had in previous relationships, he got her hook, line, and sinker. And once he did, the true Gerald started to emerge. Man. So he actually – do you think he ever had any love for them? Like why would he send her flowers if he's going to like beat the shit out of her? Well, that's like a classic love bombing technique that abusers use. It's it's what they do to lull their victims into – Uh, like a sense of false sense of security and love and trust. They basically shower them with affection, with compliments, like the sex is great. They give them gifts and then they just chip away at their self-esteem and all of their rights and all of their individualism and their relationships and try to isolate them little by little. And what happens is you're, you end up like chasing the dragon of like that beginning of the relationship when they were so nice and you start to think, I must be doing something wrong. I must be doing this to him because he was so great in the beginning. And then obviously I'm doing something wrong that's making him act like this, you know? Psycho. Terrible. It's it's I mean, it's really problematic in 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 as far as it happens all the time in emotional abusive relationships all over the place, you know? Yeah. So within weeks of the roses, he had convinced her to let him move into her duplex and oh, slowly came to control her every move. So he, he know- so if he moved in a couple weeks after with their first marriage, she was still married to someone else when he moved in. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. He was he was still technically married at this point. Mm-hmm. It's too good. Yep. So he no longer allowed her to wear her hair the way she liked, but insisted she cut bangs and put it in pigtails. Yeah. Really? Yep. That's so gross for so many reasons. So many reasons. Just that young girl fantasy. Exactly. He dictated her style of dress and then huge red flag, he began to force her to sign over her grocery store paycheck over to him. Who else did that? Someone else did that uh, same exact it thing. It was one of Marjorie's husbands. Remember? Okay. Yep, yep, Luke? yep. I think it was that guy, Luke. He was yep. bad news. The, ha- the hairdresser. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, guys, if you haven't, if you're a new listener, please go back and check out Exotic Dismemberment. That was, I think, our, our seven husbands for seventh episode. That was a really good story. Yeah, that was our seventh. You have a great memory. <laughs> Thank you. I, well, I remember setting it up because I was like, seven husbands for the seventh episode. Yay. Or was At it that the- time, it was a record. Yeah. Also, Gerald, of course, was chronically out of a job and only contributed to the household funds when he won at poker. So he has making no money. He's living in her duplex that her parents are paying for. And then he's taking her paychecks. The old poker player. 
Uh-huh. Their sex life was also troubled. It consisted of impotence on Gerald's part, Ugh. rage, and sex acts that made Charlene uncomfortable or actively injured her. Oh. Yeah, he was very sadistic, and I think that was a big part of, like, the impotence. Like, he would be like, oh, you have to – he kept pushing it further and further, and it seemed like he could only get an erection if he was hurting her. Yeah. It's pretty mm -hmm. dark. Yeah. Still, she kept attempting to please him as he consistently told her she was the problem. And he, like, would tell her things like he had never had any erectile dysfunction in the past and it was just because she couldn't get him up. She couldn't make him happy. She wasn't attractive enough. Ooh. And this is so untrue. Other women eventually, when they talked to the police, did reveal that he had this problem in all of his relationships. But every single one of them, he made them feel like they were somehow the issue. Of course. Yep. It's not um, he's a psychopath. Yeah, exactly. Her desperation to please him grew after he moved out of their duplex, ghosted her for a few weeks, and inexplicably returned. So he totally just tells her he's over her, moves out, doesn't talk to her for a few weeks. When he did return, he told her that his time away had made him realize that in order for the relationship to work, she would have to allow him to indulge in his sexual fantasies. So and this guy ghosts her, he moves out, and then he comes back and he's like, yeah, I have decided to uh, deign you with my presence and uh, be in a relationship with me, but you have to indulge my sexual fantasies more. I wonder if when he like moves out, moves back, and he just has like a duffel bag full of his like sex weapons. Oh my God. He's got like a hobo stick, you know, <laughs> like one of those sticks that you just tie a handkerchief around. Yeah. Just full of double-sided dildos. I hate this guy so much. I hate this double-sided dildo. Oh, oh I hate oh him too. God. So the top fantasy was about having sex slave type young girls available at his beck and call and forced to do whatever he wanted. So he wants to bring other girls in or she, yes. he wants her to be? Okay. I think and that he, she wasn't good enough. Like he's basically saying to make this relationship work, you have to let me sleep with other women and they need to be young and subservient. So she was like, okay, fine, whatever, but this, this is unrealistic. You're not going to find these like young girls that are willing to do whatever you want. So she told him she didn't think like his sexual fantasy was possible, but she'd be happy to support him and indulge his fantasies whenever possible. So she thought like if she dressed up, if she pretended to be young, if she did whatever, like maybe this would be enough for him, but it obviously wasn't. Well, and how old um, were they? Uh, so she's 21 and he's 31. She was listening to this and being like, oh, he's ridiculous. Like he wants yeah. to pick up some like 17 yeah. or 18-year-old girls. Yeah. And he's like an old dude and they're not going to go for him. And so yeah. I think that she wasn't as freaked out as maybe she would have been if she knew the extent of what his real fantasies were. Yeah. She's like, bro, come on. Yep. So at this point, like Gerald didn't move back in with her. He rented an apartment and he was living there with his daughter, Krista. So two things happened the summer of 1978 that kind of pushed Gerald's sex drive and sex fantasies into the danger zone. And it also put the killer couple on a collision course for murder and mayhem. The first was that a friend of Krista's from Chico named Angie came to visit. And she later reported to the authorities that Gerald sexually assaulted her twice during the visit. She was Ugh. only 13 or 14 at the time. Oh, 
Yep. And the second was an experience where Gerald and Charlene brought home a 17-year-old girl for a threesome. But Gerald instructed both women to service him, but did not allow the women to touch each other. Wow. He was really controlling and really weird about this. And it's like, dude, you're really missing out. I mean, that's the part of the threesome a lot of straight guys really like. So how did they get all these facts later? Did Charlene? Charlene. Okay. Yeah. So you'll see what happens. It's really frustrating. But Charlene spills a lot of these details. And we have to take some of the things that she says in some of this account with a grain of salt. Of course. Because I think she tries to put herself in the best light. Yeah. Often. So, however, the next day when he went to work, he was driving for a meat company. He was like a truck driver at this point. He left the two women together in bed. And when he returned home unexpectedly, like he basically didn't trust them and he's super controlling and jealous. So he didn't actually – like he said he was leaving for work. And from what I understood is he like – went and loaded up his truck, but then he went back to his house rather than delivering. Surprise. Yep. And so he surprised them and they were actually having sex, the two women, the next morning. Yeah, because they like weren't allowed to touch each other the the night before. I know. And so he lost it. He started immediately beating Charlene and he physically picked up the young girl and like threw her out of a window apparently. Out of a window. Yep. He threw her out of a window. I mean, it was like close enough to the ground floor that it didn't do serious damage, but it was physically aggressive, you know? Yeah. Like, did he break the window? Like, threw her through a I don't know. It just said that he threw her through a window. That's insane. Yep. So I don't know if it was open. I'm hoping it was at least open um, because they didn't say like that she suffered any injuries or anything. On July 17th, 1978, Gerald celebrated his 32nd birthday by sodomizing his own daughter. What? Mm-hmm. So she later testified. How old was she? She was 14. Oh, God. Yep. She later testified that the molestation and rapes had been occurring since she was six, and they occasionally happened while Charlene was in the house and knew full well what her significant other was doing. That's what Krista said. Krista said there was no way that Charlene didn't know he was raping her. Yikes. Mm -hmm. So that's what – that's like another reason why we should not necessarily trust everything Charlene says, which I think a lot of our Barry Flowers account is from her testimony. Okay. By August of 1978, Krista had moved back in with Gerald's mother. Gerald had lost his trucking job and Charlene discovered she was pregnant. Oh, no. That's all we need. Gerald was an angry, unhinged deviant without a moral compass or a purpose or a job. The sex slave fantasy was about to take a dark and deadly turn. On September 11th, 1978, Gerald woke up Charlene, who was at the time two months pregnant, and told her today was the day for his sick fantasies to be realized. They took the recreational van that Charlene had purchased with the help of her father, of course, and drove to the Country Club Plaza shopping mall. Gerald then instructed Charlene to find young and nubial girls and lure them to the van using any means necessary. Whoa. So instead of heading straight to mall security or finding a police officer, Charlene sets out on her endeavor, eventually finding and enticing two young teens to come back to the van with her by offering them pot. Wow. This is why 
I later Charlene tries to like paint herself as like yet another victim of Gerald's, but like she could have just said I couldn't find anyone, I couldn't get anyone to come with me. Yeah. She could have she could have even picked older women, but she was finding young teens to do this to. She was essentially becoming the executioner because whoever she brought back was going to be horribly assaulted and eventually killed. Yeah, and she was pregnant, you said? Yeah, she was 2 months pregnant at this moment. Yeah, so not showing her anything. I feel like I feel like oftentimes it's like over and over and over again, they keep making these mistakes because of the stakes are so high and they feel the pressure from the abuser, you know, but it's, there is a really easy solution where you go tell the cops and they arrest him mm-hmm. immediately. Exactly. And unless you yeah. do that, you're kind of guilty. It, yeah, you're, you're complicit 100%. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also really scary because women trust other women. You don't think, you know, you look to another woman in a situation as like, oh, this is safe because another woman wouldn't do this to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the girls were sweet and normal teenagers. They were 17-year-old Rhonda Scheffler and 16-year-old Kippy Vaught. They were bubbly, outgoing, curious, and looking for a good time. I think like most teenagers are, you know? (sighs) Rhonda and Kippy stepped enthusiastically into the van, expecting a great high. Instead, they found depravity and horror. Gerald pointed a twenty-five caliber pistol at them and made the girls lie face down and bound their hands and feet. He handed Charlene the gun and told her to keep them quiet while he drove them out onto Interstate 80 toward the Sierra Nevada mountains. Charlene claimed at this point she still didn't know for sure what Gerald was going to do to the girls. But I think that's a pile of shit because she knows that this guy is raping his own daughter. So what does he think? What does she think he's going to do to these two stranger daughters if he like to these strange girls if he's raping his own daughter? I know, but what is it? It's what is it called? Willful, willful ignorance. Yeah, yeah, willful ignorance. Because it's like you literally just convince yourself, like, there's no way he's sodomized. Actually, going to go through fourteen-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As this continues, there's definitely not enough about the victims, like for my usual liking. Um, every source that I looked up had scant information, and I do think that's probably because. They were a lot of the victims were extremely young. And I think that when you're especially looking at the 70s, there wasn't a lot that the women had done yet. They had like gone to school. They were typical teenagers, you know, and we don't have the um, digital trail we have. Like now, like teenagers have these robust personalities that we know about because they put everything online, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I do apologize. Like we, we try to stay a little bit more victim focused um but there's not a ton of information available on all of these women and with so many victims in this story it's 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 going to be hard for us to put ourselves in the the mental frame of every single victim every time but i mean at least for this this first abduction you can imagine the terror and the horror that these girls are going through when they were so cruelly tricked by this woman who at the time was barely over 21 and was so tiny that she probably looked like a teenager herself. Yeah, it feels so manipulative. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's really a terrifying thought process. And, a, you know, a good reminder, like we talked about at the top of the show, like to be ever vigilant and to obviously never trust strangers, never get in somebody's car, you know? Period, period, period. Yeah, if somebody has a gun on you and they want you to get into a car, you just take your chances and run. 
I like, would rather buy my kids all of the weed in the world than yes. them get in a car with a stranger to get high. Exactly. Yep. And the yeah. 70s were just a different time. It was that hinge period between like, you know, the old family values of the 1950s and, you know, kind of more modern times. Ugh, it's so terrible. So eventually Gerald pulled over just past a tiny town in the foothills of the mountains, unbound the girls, and marched them into the woods at gunpoint. He instructed Charlene to wait, which she did for hours. She was alternately worried, sick, jealous, and even bored. Had Jerry's sex slaves been all he hoped for? Would this satisfy him and get it out of his system? Or was this the beginning of a disturbing new habit? She honestly, in her recollections, seems more concerned about her relationship and what it meant for her rather than what was happening with these two girls. Like she was more like, oh, is he going to like do this all the time now? Is he going to like them more than me? Is he going to like their bodies more than my body? Like those thoughts rather than what kind of pain is he inflicting on them? Should I feel bad about this? You know, that's a bit sociopathic as well, to be honest, Mm -hmm. for her to like be consumed about that and not the safety of these two other women. I mean, I cannot fathom that. I get worried like about being around people with COVID. Like I'm like, oh my God, what if I was near someone and I have COVID and now I gave it to this other person? Like I just don't, can't imagine that frame of mind where you like aren't thinking about the well-being of these girls who you just lured into a van to your predator of a husband. Yeah. And I think that, that, I mean, we will argue this, like not you and I, we won't argue this, but we will debate like what her sociopathy was and what her contribution to this is because- I think that her looks played a huge part in people thinking she's a victim as well because she's just so tiny. Yeah. And tiny people can be evil too, you know? Like I said, she was like caring more about her relationship and what it meant for her. So day turned to dusk and when Gerald returned, he was alone. So he basically said to her, ask me no questions and I'll tell you no lies. And then he yelled at her to drive the van back to Sacramento, purposely get herself seen by friends, and then return to the scene of the crime to pick him up in the Oldsmobile. So she took off without questioning him, without asking about the girls, without anything. She just, I mean, at this point, this is points in the column of she's just doing what she's told to, you know? Again, this is just from her, so we don't know. When she returned, it was past dark and cold. She had passed a parked highway patrol car on her way back. So all she needed to do to save the lives of these girls would have been to pull over and give the California Highway Patrolman the location of where Gerald was. Because, I mean, she could have even said, I don't know how they found you. It wasn't me. You know? Like, she could have said, I have no idea. Like, she could have told this guy exactly where they was and, like, and just, like, been on the scene later and lied to Gerald and said, I don't know how he found out where you were, you know? No, but there's some part of her that's into it. Exactly. Exactly. Because there, she talks about even seeing the California Highway Patrol guy and being like, I could stop, but I'm not going to. Yep. So she didn't know at this point whether the girls were dead or alive. Like she later says the reason like she didn't stop was because like it didn't matter if the girls were already dead. And it's like mm, still matters because you could prevent the deaths of future people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the girls were alive, but disheveled, disoriented, dirty, and of course, majorly traumatized. He ordered them into the backseat of the Oldsmobile. 
Gerald assured them everything was going to be fine. He told them that they were just going to like drop them off in the middle of the woods somewhere to make it more difficult for them to get back and like report him. And then he instructed Charlene to drive to Sloth House, a farming community on the other side of Sacramento County. When they arrived, he ordered the girls out and told Charlene to turn up the radio and not turn around. She did as she was told and heard popping noises only seconds later. He climbed back into the car momentarily before exclaiming, damn it, one of those bitches is wriggling. And he got back out to finish the job. He had shot them and that apparently one of the girls was still alive. And so he got back out to kill her. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Two days after the teens disappeared, migrant farm workers discovered their bodies. A coroner later reported that the girls had been sexually assaulted before their death and then, of course, shot. By that time, Rhonda's 19-year-old husband, Gregory, had already reported the girls missing. Despite his concern, Gregory, as the husband, of course, flew to the top of the list of suspects. Eventually, the cops received a lead from a witness who was acquainted with Kippy and Rhonda. The witness erroneously reported that the girls were seen getting into a Pontiac Firebird with two young African-American men. What? Yeah, of course they did. And this totally set the detectives down on completely the wrong path of harassing young black men who had registered red Pontiac Firebirds. Oh, my God. And they left the real murderers free and clear while they chased down these, you know, bigoted leads. Uh. Yep. The day after the killings, Charlene and Gerald disposed of his clothes and threw the girls' purses and the pistol into the Sacramento River. If they had stopped with those two victims, they 100% would have gotten away with the killings for sure. Unfortunately for their future victims and their families, they did not stop there. After the murders, Gerald forced Charlene to have an abortion. Ugh. Mm-hmm. She complied, though she had desperately wanted to have the baby. Sometime after the abortion, Gerald and Charlene stopped in Chico to visit Gerald's mother and his daughter, Krista. Little did Gerald know that brave Krista had finally told her grandmother and the authorities about her father molesting her from the time she was only six years old. I think that she took a lot of the abuse on herself, but when he abused her friend, Angie, I think that's when she was like, I need to be brave because he's going to do this to other people. Yep, yep. Lorraine, Gerald's mother, was told to alert the police when Gerald paid a visit. She was true to her word and called the cops the moment she saw Charlene's van in her driveway. Good for her. Which is really good. She did not try to protect him at all. Wow, that that's that makes me really happy. I do think that Lorraine had had a, like a turning point in life at this point. It doesn't really get into it, but it sounds like after her first like three marriages, the first to Gerald's father and then to the two subsequent alcoholics, at some point she had married a nice guy and like things had kind of turned around for her also I mean if you're like an actual sex worker as well and you that's the field you work in which it is a field and it's the oldest profession in the world it's like you know if your son is being sexually abusive to people Mm -hmm. and that's something that you could put your life on the line in your career with being a victim of that's scary has to be a little nervous knowing you know, I'm sure she was surprised by the violence of her ex-husband 
And having this little baby boy, she must have been a little worried that he would take after his dad, you know? Yeah. So she did do the right thing. She did come out into the driveway and say, hey, just so you know, I, I've already alerted the police and they're coming. And she she suggested to him that he turn himself in and get help. That's what she wanted for him. She wanted yeah. him to admit what he had done, go forget jail time or like be, you know, admitted to a hospital and talk yeah. and get therapy for, you know, what obviously I think she knew something had happened to him. Yeah. Because she wanted him to specifically get help. And so Gerald <clears throat> was still processing what what his mom was saying and that the fact that the cops were potentially coming for him when Lorraine's husband which uh, the author didn't know if it was her fourth or fifth husband. So either her fourth or fifth husband came out like in a rage and came out to kick Gerald's ass, which I think is a natural response to the rape of, of a child, you of know? Course. So at that point, because he came out with like a baseball bat, uh, Gerald jumped back in the van and he just sped off. And just like that, he was like on the run with Charlene. So they're on the run now as far as there there's going to be a warrant out for Gerald's arrest. And so the <laughs> first thing that they do is get married in Reno, Nevada. So this was the sixth marriage for Gerald and the third for Charlene. The only people in attendance were Charlene's parents, Charles and Mercedes. And for Charlene, this marriage was definitely about love. Uh, but it was largely strategic for Gerald. He believed that making Charlene his wife would prevent her from testifying against him in the case that they were arrested. What's it that called? Spousal? Spousal privilege. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that. It no, right. you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it also came with another huge bonus. Somehow, Charlene had convinced her parents that Gerald had been falsely accused of molestation. And that they needed help fleeing the police. So she said it was all wrong. He was innocent. And that they needed to find a birth certificate from one of their family members so that he could officially change his identity. So somehow the Williamses get their hands on a birth certificate of a distant Stop. relative. Uh-huh. They do this. Of a, a man named Stephen File. It's it's spelled F-E-I-L, but I think it's um, pronounced File, um, who was the Whoa. right age. Mm -hmm. I just can't believe her parents would do this. My parents then, would be like, oh, hell no. Yeah, no, you got to, you know, you got to take responsibility for what you've done. You guys are on mm -hmm. the run getting married in Reno. Yep. And this so, is their sixth or seventh. Is this his sixth or seventh? Is this the this first is time they got sixth, married? Because this is the first time they get married. Yeah. Wow. So they get they do all of that within two months. Yes. Isn't that crazy? Wild. Okay. Yep. So Charles and Mercedes, that's Charlene's parents. And this is another case of the people like naming their kids after them. Like it's Charles and her name is Charlene. You oh, know? Oh god, yeah. Uh-huh. They were completely convinced of his his evidence uh, in uh, they were completely convinced of his innocence and <laughs> say thus, that one more time say I can't even time. say that he's innocent this is like it's like you can even leave this in I guys I have screwed up saying innocence like three times already because I can't bring myself to say that he's innocent even talking about it um, oh yes. my god it's too good oh my her god. parents are completely convinced of his innocence and I am choking as I say that so thusly 
Gerald Gallego and Charlene Williams get married and they soon become right after their marriage, Mr. and Mrs. File. So the name change mm -hmm, could not have happened at a a better time for Gerald uh, because his arrest warrant was filed only days later on October 9th, 1978. The felony offenses include incest, sodomy, and sexual and oral copulation with a minor. Rough. Disgusting. Ugh. Yep. So bail was set at $50,000. The two moved to Houston, Texas briefly to escape the heat, but they ended up moving back in 1979 to like the Nevada area. Um, That Father's Day fell on June 24th and Gerald, perhaps thinking of his own daughter, woke up Charlene with a familiar and dreaded request. It had been long enough. He wanted new slaves. So once again, he forced Charlene to go hunting at the Washoe County Fair. This time, she came armed with a small stack of pamphlets that she had stolen. In less than an hour, she found her prey, two very sweet, very young teenage girls who were about to leave the fair. Brenda Lynn Judd and Sandra K. Colley were only 14 and 13 years old. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I mean, that's like sixth and seventh grade. Maybe seventh and eighth. I mean, they're they're junior high, middle schoolers, you know? Ugh. They had concluded their fun day at the fair, and they were waiting for a third friend to come pick them up when Charlene suggested that they make a buck attaching the pamphlets to car windshields like she was doing while they waited. So they were like, okay, we're doing nothing but waiting. If we can make a couple dollars just like putting pamphlets on windshields, we might as well. So she told them to follow her to the van where she could grab more pamphlets and then she could also get some money to pay them. When they reached the van, Gerald pointed a newly acquired 44 handgun in their faces and ordered them into the vehicle. The Galagos had since added a mattress to the back of the van of horrors and Gerald ordered the captives to lie face down where he bound them and covered them with twin blankets. Once again, he had Charlene hold the gun on the girls while he drove. And I think it's important also to note that there was so many times in these stories that she had the gun and he didn't have a gun, where they only had one gun and she was the one holding it. And they weren't even driving yet. You know, like there was so many times that she could have been like, no mother effer. Like, you get out of the car. You don't do this to us anymore, you know? Uh, and I know, I know that, you know, there was obviously abuse in their relationship too, but it just, when other people, especially children are involved, like you got to sack up and get outside of yourself and do something, you know? I know. It's like, honestly, thank God that they ended up having that abortion. Yeah, exactly. They once again drove east on Interstate 80, only stopping once so that Gerald could buy a shovel and a hammer at a hardware store. Yeah, so this is going to get not great. Anything more suspect. Yep. Eventually, he ordered Charlene to switch places with him, and she realized in horror that he intended to brutalize the young girls while she was driving. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Because last time he took the girls out into the woods. So for over an hour, she drove directionlessly into the dusk while Gerald violated and abused the kidnapped teens. Could you – Oh my god! I, I cannot can. even with like just driving and hearing. What's I would have. I would have crashed the van. I would have been like, I'm. I'm just gonna crash it into a pole and make this stop. You know. So 
horrifying. She listened to their anguished screams without emotion. And they were pleading for her to do something like, please help us, you know. And she just kept driving silently until Gerald eventually yelled at her for driving too fast. He was afraid that they would get arrested because she was going to get pulled over for speeding. And he switched places with her again. Eventually, he stopped in the dark in the high Nevada desert. Gerald took the girls one by one into the desert. But this time, Charlene heard no gunshots. So basically, in the, the sum up of the crimes committed in that Reddit article I read, it was reported that Charlene engaged in the torment of the girls at this point by forcing them to perform sex acts on each other. That Charlene did that. Huh. That she was active in a lot of this. And she does admit that she is sexually attracted to women, that there was occasions where she was, you know, sexually active with women. She does have a girlfriend later on. So it's it's very unclear because she maintains that she never sexually assaulted any of these women, but there's other sources that say she did. So in our main source, it kind of follows more directly to what she testifies to, but I read in other articles that she might have had a hand in the sexual violence. Hmm. In any event, the girls were bludgeoned to death by Gerald with a shovel and then buried together nude in the desert. So this is starting to become his process. Like this is something he enjoys doing because he had a gun. He could have just shot the girls to be over, like it be done with. Like he, you know, got his rocks off and now he wanted to dispose of them so that they wouldn't, you know, tell on him essentially. But instead he bludgeoned them to death, which seems like unnecessary force and rage. Yeah. And rage. Yeah, exactly. So the girls were considered runaways for nearly four years and no one was even looking for them. What do you mean? They just were like, oh, you know, one of the girls, I guess, had tried to run away from home before. And at this, in this era of time, there's another set of victims that ends up the same thing. They're just like, teenage girls just run away sometimes. We're not even looking for them. It's like the Rolling Stones age. Yeah, exactly. What's Penny, Penny Lane? Exactly. Like they were just like people would go hitchhiking and you might just not see them again and that's just the way teenagers were. So like the cops wouldn't even investigate these cases, you know? It's crazy. Yeah, their remains were not found until November 1999. Yeah, that's how long it took for them to find these girls. Within a few months of the second set of murders, Charlene and Gerald moved back to Sacramento, where Gerald obtained a California driver's license under the name Stephen File and a job as a bartender. By Christmas 1979, he also acquired a new girlfriend named Patty, whom he had met at the bar. Records indicate that Charlene was aware of the affair. And while not happy about it, she did welcome the thought that the sexual variety might ward off Gerald's incessant need for new slaves. So basically, it's not nice that he's having an affair on her, but maybe this will satisfy him enough that she's not going to be a party to more murder, you know? Yeah. It's just so crazy, too. Like, I feel like I feel like his fantasy about the sex slaves is bullshit, and it's actually he's just a fucking murderer, to be honest. Oh, yeah. If your real vice is that you want a sex slave, you would literally keep someone around forever as a sex slave. You wouldn't just kill them after having sex with them one time. This just seems like... No, I don't think think he knew how to say 
I can only get off on hurting people and really hurting them. Not yeah. like in the safe word sense of, you know, BDSM, BDSM play. Yeah. No, this is like I can only really get off if I am hurting or killing someone. Yeah. He was like – that's it's like him saying that he wanted a sex slave as like his gateway drug to actually yeah. – he just wants to beat the shit out of them and murder them. Yes. And exactly. these young girls, which is just even more fucked up, like – it's disgusting. Well, I mean, definitely something – some wires were crossed in his brain about whatever early abuse he suffered with pain and sex and domination and, you know, only he's bringing it to a, an insane extreme in this case, you know? Yeah. Gross. So, unfortunately, Patty was not enough to hold off – his desires. In April 1980, Gerald woke Charlene with the demand, I want a girl. Before they left, Gerald took white macrame rope, probably left over from around the dangling club. That's twisted. Oh, God. It is so twisted. And a 357 Magnum revolver. They ended up at the Sunrise Mall where they spotted two teenage girls leaving a bookstore. Karen Chapman Twiggs and Stacey Ann Redican, both 17, had recently gotten jobs at a fast food restaurant and were enjoying spending their hard-earned money at the mall. Ugh, these poor girls. <sighs> Charlene approached them with the offer to smoke pot, and once again, Gerald forced them into the van at gunpoint. Charlene drove the van toward Reno while Gerald raped the terrified teenagers in the back. They stopped briefly at a grocery store where Gerald purchased cigarettes and a hammer and then he continued the sexual assault once they arrived in limerick canyon an area outside of lovelock nevada gerald asked charlene hey you want these girls i think they're your type according to charlene she demurred not accepting the offer however some evidence in other reports suggest that charlene did actually participate in the rape of the two girls Afterwards, Gerald beat the two girls to death with a hammer. So he is escalating his behavior. And then how did he dispose of them this time? He buried them. So, okay, so repeated the shovel. Exactly. Yeah, it's like yeah. so scary that they're in Nevada too. It's just like vast, vast desert. nothingness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So many bodies buried out there. Yeah, he must have not buried them very deep because they were discovered by picnickers nearly three months later. I guess that some coyotes or wolves or something had like unearthed the bodies. Of course, yeah. Yep, so some scavengers had found them and then picnickers found some part of the remains. During the time that they had been gone, they had been completely like written off as runaways, just like the previous set of girls. Ugh. No witnesses reported seeing Karen or Stacey Ann with Charlene or entering the deadly van. So the investigation eventually had just gone cold. Like, you know, essentially like when they did find the bodies, they knew that the girls had been at the fair. But then people said that they saw them basically at the exit and nobody had seen them since. So there was just nowhere to go from there, you know. Mm. Only days after they killed and buried Stacey Ann and Karen, Charlene found out she was expecting a baby again. Stop. No, this is highly irresponsible. This time, Gerald didn't outright force Charlene <laughs> to get rid of it. He figured the baby might serve the greater purpose of keeping Charlene devoted, happy, loyal, and above all, committed to him and his deadly impulses. The thought of him, like, if a baby 
being born and it being his child and knowing what he's capable of is just nauseating to me. Well, I mean, he's definitely going to sexually abuse it and it could end up like him. You know, like the idea of wanting to have a child with this person is insane. On Saturday, May 31st, 1980, Charlene and Gerald married again officially as Stephen and Charlene file this time. They had gotten married as the Gallegos before. So now they were officially, because he still had his old ID when they got married, now he has the California driver's license that says Stephen file. So this is wedding number seven for him and four for her. And the reason that he did this was a couple things. He wanted it to be legal with his, his new name. Yeah. He also, I think that he was not convinced that maybe the last one was legal because of his previous divorce, you know? Yeah, because he was still married to someone else. Because he was still married to somebody else. So this was like him doubling down on making sure she wouldn't testify against him, essentially. What happens if like – so Stephen File, the actual Stephen File, is still alive and living elsewhere in California. Yes, and it turns out he was like – he was like a California highway patrolman too. Like he was in law enforcement. What? And he just didn't know that they were – He had no idea because I don't think that they were applying to like credit cards or anything where you'd do a background check. Wow. So, so he, did, he didn't – nobody knew. He had no idea until uh, the crimes came to light and then they contacted him. Wow. That's yep. crazy. Yep. So they decided to celebrate the new marriage by getting wrecked on alcohol, weed, and a pile of cocaine. <laughs> Charlene was six weeks pregnant. Oh, yeah. my God. She drinks and uses so much cocaine throughout the story in her entire pregnancy, too. So much cocaine. So much cocaine. Like Lindsay Lohan amounts of cocaine. <laughs> so they decided to take a drive up the coast for like a mini honeymoon, where on June 7th, 1980, they spotted their next victim walking down the highway outside of Gold Beach, Oregon. Linda Aguilar, only 21, was four months pregnant. Stop. Yep, her very she hitchhiking. She actually was like a big nature lover, and she was actually coming back from a hike, and so she wasn't like hitchhiking in general. She would have just walked the whole way. But when they pulled over to offer her a ride, she saw Charlene, who looked really nice, and was and like, was "Also oh. pregnant." Yeah, and who was also pregnant. I think she was still pretty early at this stage, so I don't know if it was visible. Okay, but like, it's another woman and maybe at that point she knew or Charlene said oh I'm also pregnant you know yeah and so she felt safe and she was like okay I'm just going you know down the highway if you want to give me a lift that would be great and so she like totally got in the the car and didn't see she didn't get any weird feeling she was like apparently chatting away talking to Charlene about her baby she had just she had like gone on a nature hike and then she had like stopped at like some sort of like goodwill store or something to buy some toys for the baby ugh Yeah. So she didn't even know anything was wrong until Gerald insisted that Charlene switch places with her and went to the back to attack her. Yeah. So Charlene was like actually kind of upset about this. Like she had kind of dealt with the first six victims in this case, but this one was so off type 
for him that it was concerning to her because A, he was picking up a pregnant woman on the side of the highway in broad daylight, which like seemed very, very risky because people will remember seeing a pregnant woman walking down the highway and they might have, there was cars going by when she got into their van, you know? Yeah, that's like so risky. So risky. And also Gerald had often told her that like young blonde teens were his ideal type. And so she's like being crazy and being like, why is he risking so much to pick up a brunette who has like a darker complexion and is visibly pregnant? Like she's like confused about why he's risking so much for somebody who's off type. And I also think almost like there's a that jealousy, selfishness, sociopathy at play mm-hmm. here too, where she's like, Ugh, she's not even hot, you know? Yeah. Charlene drove while Gerald brutally raped the shocked expectant mother who absolutely did not see this coming. I mean, I'm sure no one did. But like she when she got into the van, she had no idea that they were anything other than a nice couple. So they eventually parked on a desolate roadside where Gerald assaulted the woman again and again, after which, tragically, Linda suffered the most horrifying death at Gerald's hands. When her body was found days later by some truly unfortunate German tourists, The medical examiner determined that Linda had been bludgeoned repeatedly. Her skull was cracked in several places. She had been strangled, and then she had been buried alive in the sand. Yeah. So it seems that Gerald most likely believed she was dead when he buried her. So the the burying alive is the absolutely most terrifying part of this. It seems like that wasn't intentional. The medical examiner believes she had been, you know, passed out or incapacitated when she was buried. But when she came to, she literally drowned in the sand. They found the sand in her throat and mouth and lungs. Oh, my God. That's horrifying. It's terrible. And they said that, I mean, the, the tragic part of this is that she had such a will to live. Like the things she went through were like tenfold of what his other victims went through. Like she like seemed to survive multiple fractures in the head and she survived the strangulation. Like it seemed like she had a lot of will to live. And she would have survived most likely if, if he hadn't buried her in that sand. Even with like the skull fractures? possibly they don't know for sure but they know that that's the thing that killed her Uh, yeah so i mean he's getting off on the killing at this point like i said in any one of these cases he could have just shot somebody and had it be done with you know and honestly i'm almost more mad at charlene because he could not have done this without her Absolutely not. There's no way. I mean, he he absolutely probably would have killed somebody in his life. It just seems likely based on where he came from, what happened to him in his life, the things we've heard about. But it wasn't until he had Charlene that he killed anyone. There's no evidence that he had killed anyone in the past. He was a- abusive, nightmare, sadistic dick in his marriages he was a wife beater for sure yeah but he he had never ever killed somebody they haven't been able to prove that there was any other victims before charlene no because she made him approachable yep she i mean he there's no way he could have done any of this i mean he could have like attacked women in alleyways in the dark you know but he could have never lulled them into this false sense of security you know that she gave him she she made this very easy on him and also I think if he had been 
like skulking around a mall to talking to teenage girls, Someone would people would have absolutely or they yep. at least would have remembered him they would have been like oh god those girls went missing i saw them talking to this guy in the mall mm-hmm. if they see two teenage girls talking to a girl that looks only a couple years older they're not going to remember that no not no. a not even five foot blonde talking to them no absolutely not yeah so i mean charlene to me should have gotten whatever punishment gerald got yeah you were gonna be so I'm not going to spoil alert it, but like you're going to be so angry when we talk about the sentencing. Ugh. Okay. Anyway, the summer of 1980 was a tough one for Gerald and Charlene. They were both heavily abusing drugs and alcohol. They were unemployed and they were living off the money from Charlene's parents. Charlene was pregnant Ugh. and Gerald's behavior was escalating. By the time he targeted his eighth victim, he was wildly off type and the intervals between the killings were shortening rapidly. So after a day of fishing and heavy drinking, the murderers ended up at a bar called the Sail Inn. Gerald and Charlene stayed for a few hours. They got lit and they played pool. When the bar closed, Gerald, was, who was kind of trashed, decided that the 34-year-old bartender was going to become one of his girls. After Virginia Mochel, the hardworking and generous mother of two, closed down the bar around 2 a.m., Gerald forced her into their van at gunpoint. While Virginia pleaded for her life, mentioning her kids, the babysitter who would be expecting her home, and her family, Gerald directed Charlene to drive them home to their apartment in Sacramento, which was a line that had never been crossed before. So he didn't actually go into the apartment with Virginia. He parked in the parking lot of their apartment building. He sent Charlene in and told her to watch TV in their apartment. And he raped Virginia in the van in the parking lot. After he was finished, he summoned Charlene back to watch him strangle the single mother and help him dispose of the body. So Gerald is veering wildly off course now. The first three murder events took place several months apart, and they all included pairs of teenage girls. Now that he's escalating, he went from Stacy Ann and Karen in late April to pregnant Linda in early June to the 34-year-old Virginia barely a month later in mid-July. So the intervals between the killings are getting shorter and shorter. Yeah, yeah. Which is typical serial killer behavior. And that's usually when they get caught because they start acting irrationally and they're not watching themselves and they're just going on crazy impulse. Yeah. And Charlene, once again, has time and time again that she could have gone and told the cops. Yep. And she didn't. I mean, she's just – at this point, the book describes her as completely checked out. Like, she no longer cares that they're pleading. She no longer cares that they're screaming. She no longer cares what's going on. Yeah, she She just mutes herself or numbs herself to it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Following the murder of Virginia, Charlene convinced Gerald to lie low and sell the van. So now, again, this is not about her saving other people's lives. This is about her trying not to get caught. Yeah, protecting – herself yep so this is the first time they were questioned in a disappearance um before virginia's body is found but only because they were in the bar that night they were in the bar until closing so they were questioned as witnesses and it's like this pregnant woman and him which is so insane to me like (laughs) that a pregnant woman was like closing down a bar a visibly pregnant woman and no one was like hey lady (laughs) maybe you shouldn't be doing that like 
It's crazy. And sure, they were on drugs too. Yeah. Oh, 100%. They said that uh, Charlene was specifically very fond of cocaine, like that she did piles of it, like all the time, but specifically during this pregnancy as well. Was it like a classic, what we call rape van now? The van yes. that they were using? Well, it was like, it kind of was like more like those vans that you see that you can rent for like long travel. It was like, decorated like there was like a sunset and like a vulture on the side of it like it was a very specific conversion van type thing they called it a recreational van I don't know if that helps but that's what they they referred to it in the book as and you said you saw a picture of it I did not see there's no pictures in this book unfortunately so it's just going to be what we can dig up online So yeah, they had been questioned in the disappearance as witnesses due to being present in the bar that evening. So they had never come that close to becoming suspects. So I think that that scared Charlene a lot. And, you know, now she's thinking about her pregnancy and protecting this child. She doesn't want it to be born in prison. So she was like, let's put this behind us. Let's sell the van. There's Christ tons of evidence in that van if somebody forensically went through it, you know. So let's get rid of the van. Let's just, you know, put this whole sex slave business behind us. She's hoping for good. I think that he saw it as more of a pause, you know. In August of 1980, roughly a month after the murder, Gerald assaulted his pregnant wife viciously in front of her mother, Mercedes, apparently at her parents' house. They got into a fight And he started strangling Charlene, who's visibly pregnant. And her mother was trying to get him off of her and eventually had to take a vase and break it over his head to get him to stop choking. Good girl. Good girl. Mm -hmm. So at the urging of her parents, Charlene finally left Gerald and moved back in with her parents. At that point, Gerald moved to Oregon briefly with his now pregnant girlfriend patty he also got patty pregnant stop this guy has super sperm and he's the most evil fuck that we've ever talked about yeah this is his what fourth pregnancy then yep exactly fifth if you're including the one she had the abortion with i think right well krista krista then there's henriette's and then there's abortion that's right then then there's her other you know current pregnancy and then there's patty so that's five shit So apparently him and Patty, like, didn't get along well after all. I think that he didn't actually abuse Patty for whatever reason. So I don't know why he couldn't bring himself to do the things that he did to other girlfriends to Patty, but also that didn't fulfill him. So she got off lucky, even though she didn't know why they were breaking up. So the relationship, obviously, and the move didn't last long. And Gerald ended up moving back to Sacramento mid-October, and he got back together with Charlene. I'm Ugh. sure he just realized that there was no way Patty was going to be an accomplice the way Charlene was going to be. Yeah, he already got her needy. Mm-hmm. On November 1st, the two took Charlene's Oldsmobile out for dinner and drinks. After several rounds of cocktails, Gerald told Charlene he was getting that feeling again. He talked Charlene into cruising two popular shopping malls and the parking lot of a Tower Records, but it was super late. It was already like somewhere between 1 and 2 a.m. at this point. Okay. So there wasn't a lot of people out. Finally, Gerald spotted a young, attractive couple walking down the center of a parking lot and demanded Charlene pull into a spot close by. He immediately jumped out of the car with a 25 caliber Beretta (laughs) 
and ordered the young lovebirds into the Oldsmobile. Craig Miller was 22 and Mary Beth Sowers was his, I think it's, it's S-O-W-E-R-S, Sowers. Sowers, yeah. Yeah. And Mary Beth Sowers was his 21-year-old fiancé. They were both college seniors expected to graduate the following spring with honors and extremely bright futures. They had been leaving a fraternity Founders Day dinner dance and were so surprised by the sudden appearance of an armed man that they just followed his instructions. So I'll read I mean, a little Isn't bit. that what everyone says to do? Like everyone yeah. always says like if someone comes up to you and is threatening you or has a weapon, like just throw the wallet, throw the bag, do whatever they say. But it's like, really? I think that you should unless they tell you to get into a car and then you just do whatever you can to get away. Yeah. Okay. If if they're like, hey, give me your purse, you're like, here, have my purse, have my yeah. phone. You throw it far away from you and then you run in the other direction. Yeah. Uh, but I think if somebody tells you to get into a car, and this is what I think I would tell my daughter, I would say you fight like hell even if they have a gun and you do yeah. not get into a vehicle to go to a second location. Because it's going to be way – they're going to get busted way more if they shoot you in public. Exactly. Like they're going to be scared of shooting you in public. In front of Tower Records. Exactly. Wherever they take you is going to be private and they're going to do whatever they're going to do to you. And, and then kill you. And then kill you. Yeah, exactly. So fearing the deadly power of a gun, Mary Beth and Craig played out their captor's game, undoubtedly expecting to live through the ordeal. Just like you're saying, like we are are told over and over again to just follow what somebody says when they have a gun. Yeah. They underestimated Gerald Gallego and his dark motives. It would prove to be a fatal miscalculation. It was nearly 1.30 in the morning when Craig Miller's fraternity brother left the Founders Day celebration. Walking through the parking lot with his date, the fraternity brother recognized Craig and Mary Beth sitting in the back seat of a silver Oldsmobile. The headlights were on and the motor running. Given that the fraternity brother knew Miller and Sowers had arrived there in Mary Beth's Honda and the Oldsmobile was unfamiliar, he was curious as to what was going on. He left his date standing there and approached the Oldsmobile. He opened the driver's side door and leaned his tall, husky frame into the empty driver's seat to talk with his friends. It was then that he noticed the somewhat intimidating presence of the stocky man in the front passenger seat. The man glared but said nothing. The fraternity brother looked at Craig and Mary Beth in the back. Both appeared tense. Thought you two had had enough partying for one night, said the fraternity brother, half-joking. Craig was not laughing when he said to him, get the hell out of here. This is no place for you. If Craig was hoping that he would read between the lines, it worked. The fraternity brothers sensed all was not right, but before he could figure out exactly what was wrong, he was accosted by someone outside of the car. What the hell do you think you're doing in my car? The fraternity brother lifted out of the car and was surprised to see the boisterous voice coming from a petite, pregnant blonde woman. She acted as if he had committed a federal offense. Why? Who are you anyway, he asked, baffled. What's going on here? None of your damn business, she spat at him. You bastard, don't ever put your filthy ass in my car again. Then she slapped him hard. So this is why I don't believe this little innocent victim routine, you know? Yep. It's one of the many reasons. One of the many reasons. Yeah. It certainly caught his attention, particularly from a woman so small and fragile looking. He did not appreciate being hit and told her so. She yelled some more expletives at him 
that were definitely unladylike got into the car and screeched away. But not before the fraternity brother, still pissed at the woman and worried about Craig and Mary Beth, took down the license plate number of the Oldsmobile. Good boy. Yes. This is a, a fraternity boy is the hero of the story in a shocking twist. <laughs> Plot twist. <laughs> Plot twist. We got a fraternity brother hero here. Yeah. So that's crazy. So the reason why Charlene was outside of the car is that Craig had realized once he got in the car how dangerous the situation was. Like he had done it instinctively. Like there's a gun. I follow the instructions. And I think when he got in the car, he changed his mind. So he took Mary Beth's keys because he had been planning on driving Mary Beth's car Mm -hmm. and he threw them out of the car. So he threw them out of the car to either signal to somebody that something was wrong yeah. or if they did get away, there would be some evidence there that they had like left a breadcrumb, you know? Yeah. And so Gerald had shouted to Charlene to get out and get the keys. And so if they hadn't, if Charlene had not gotten out to look for the keys, they probably would have been already gone by the time the fraternity brother came out. Oh, yeah. So that's what was going on when this was happening. Thanks to the quick thinking of that fraternity brother, this would eventually cause the Galagos undoing. Unfortunately, it didn't happen soon enough to save Mary Beth and Craig. So even though Craig attempted to delay their departure and did, and did, it, it still didn't help. They like, you know, still got away. The killers parked off a remote exit on Interstate 80 and Craig at that point begged Gerald to just let Mary Beth go, saying, like, he would be happy to take her place. He doesn't want but just – he doesn't no, want just Craig. Gerald yeah. apparently, like, laughed in his face and was like, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Well, that's not happening. And he ordered Gerald out of the car. I mean, he ordered – Gerald ordered Craig out of the car. And, you know, Craig didn't want to go. He didn't want to leave Mary Beth, obviously. And he's like, fine, I'll kill you right, like, in front of her, you know, or something. And he is like, if you get out, like, it's going to be different for you. And so he's like – he got out. And, like, within two steps, he shot him right in the back of the head, right in front of Mary Beth. Oh, my you know. God. And this is also what I'm talking about as far as the escalation. He get he gets right back in the car and leaves. Like, he doesn't try to bury him. He doesn't try to cover him up. He just leaves yeah. his, his body right there. He is, like, not operating. So flagrant. Exactly. So, yeah, poor but that's Mary like, Beth. That's, like, the invincible thing that, like, serial killers get. Like, they're like, I keep getting away with it. I'm getting away with it. I'm, I'm untouchable. They've gotten away with eight other victims. Yep. yep. And, it's and an been, unborn child. It's been two years. Yeah, it's been two years. They've gotten away with everything. So at this point, he – I mean, Mary Beth is hysterical, obviously. It's the worst thing I could ever imagine watching the love of your life be killed in front of you. And he orders Charlene to take them back to his apartment where he tortures and rapes Mary Beth repeatedly while calling her by his daughter Krista's name. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Apparently, this is one another one that Charlene – witnessed um this is also every time he was getting closer to home you know he raped virginia in their parking lot essentially this time he brings mary beth into their apartment and he has charlene sit in the living room while he's raping and torturing her in the bedroom and she can hear him saying are you going to be my little krista tonight like tell me your name is krista oh my god 
so disgusting. There's like not words for it. No. No. So after several hours of this, Gerald and Mary Beth finally emerge from the room. He wakes up Charlene saying, the party's over. Time to take Miss Coed for a ride. Following Gerald's instructions, Charlene drives them to an isolated road near Sierra College in Placer County and executes Mary Beth with three gunshots to the head. Wow. So I don't know if he was just tired from all of the raping and everything that happened through the night, but for some reason he did just shoot her. Yeah. Meanwhile, the police began the search for Craig and Mary Beth at 9 a.m. the following morning after the fraternity brothers had tipped off the police and both of the couple's parents. Detectives paid a visit to the Williams' home, Charlene's parents, because the Oldsmobile was registered to them. So they were waiting for Charlene when Gerald dropped her off. So Charlene, basically Gerald drops her off and he's like, the cops are probably going to be here soon if they're not here already. Like, you better tell them a good story, essentially. Like, he's trusting her to look innocent and speak well, you know? So she told them that she knew nothing about the disappearance of the college students. She and her boyfriend, Stephen, had gone to see a movie last night and had returned to his apartment around midnight and stayed the night. Everything about Charlene Williams was believable. Her tiny, slender, attractive appearance and soft voice gave her an almost instant credibility. And she was several months pregnant. Pregnant women did not abduct people or harm them. Yet the detectives also had the license number and a description of the car and driver, which happened to fit her to a T. The police asked to search the Oldsmobile, but the Gallegos had already cleaned it, so there was nothing that was visible to the naked eye that would alarm them. And eventually Charlene just claimed she was morning sick and she felt dizzy and she had to go lay down. So she was using her pregnancy as an excuse. So the detectives like weren't convinced that she was innocent, but they also couldn't deny that she was pregnant and maybe feeling ill. So they were like, okay, we're going to like let you go rest now, but we will be following up essentially. So later that day, Craig's body was discovered, of course, because they didn't even hide it. Yep. And the detectives attempted to find Stephen at his apartment. When he wasn't there, they returned to the Williams's home. And apparently at some point, it, it did take a while. This actually didn't happen for like at least two or three more visits over the next couple days. They eventually cracked and they admitted that Stephen's real name was in fact Gerald. Good. So yeah, they came clean. However, after they did that, they did meet – Charlene and Gerald in a parking lot and not only warned them that the cops were going to be coming for them and knew Gerald's real name, they gave them cash they could go on the run. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, this is the most insane case of enabling I've ever seen in my life. It's enabling your murderous child. Yeah. That's, I mean, they should be convicted as well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you completely. By now, the detectives had discovered, of course, Gerald's outstanding warrant and were interviewing witnesses who knew him at the testimony of a woman who knew Gerald slash Stephen. They discovered bullets from the same gun Gerald had used to kill Craig lodged in a tavern ceiling where Gerald had once shot them to impress a lady bar patron. Wow. Yeah. 
So Gerald and Charlene went on the run, eventually getting captured in Omaha, Nebraska, when they went to pick up a money order sent by Charlene's parents, who had thankfully finally done the right thing and notified the FBI. So they did notify the FBI after Charlene got in touch with them and said, we need money. And they said, it's okay, too late. tell us. It's too late. But it's, it is. It's too late. Yeah, They've already killed off. 10 people and an yeah. unborn baby. So they were arrested on November 22nd, 1980. And only five days later, the body of Mary Elizabeth was discovered in a shallow trench, dashing the hopes of her friends, family, and the police who had held out hope that she would be found alive. So during the three weeks that they were on the run. That's the, what I mean. Like, the family were like desperately hoping that they had just taken her as a hostage, you know? Yeah. No. And that's like, that's what's so fucked up is that they like took that long to report them to the FBI and that family was suffering. The entire time. Yeah. 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 And they were there for five days, not saying anything. Like the cops were like, just tell us where she is. And they were like, nope. And I think that- Isn't that withholding evidence? Oh, for sure. But they've already killed people. They don't care about withholding evidence. But the thing is that it's just – it's so cruel too because the entire time, the entire community, all of her friends and family, all of her loved ones were just praying for her safe return. And when her body is found, it's in her evening gown that she had worn to the dance and dinner that night. Wow. Ugh. Mary Beth was laid to rest next to Craig Miller, the love of her life, spending eternity together in death, though sadly not in life as they had planned. Yeah, they're babies. Just babies. Uh, Charlene and Gerald were held for the kidnapping, assault, and murders of Craig and Mary Beth while police attempted to link them to other crimes. Obviously, they knew that they had been questioned in Virginia's disappearance as witnesses, so now they're trying to figure out if they did something to her. Yeah. They they find the van that was, you know, sold to somebody else. They're searching the van. They're searching the Oldsmobile for other forensic evidence. Good. Meanwhile, Charlene gave birth to their son, Gerald Gallego III. Gross. Gross. Also, what a legacy. That means Third generation murderous rapist. Yep. And the second to be born to a father who was behind bars because he was – when he was born, Gerald was born, his father was in prison. Do we know anything about him? No. And I don't don't think he's done anything. So somehow this kid survived and – is fine. I mean, I'm sure he's not fine, but he didn't kill anyone. So I think that's, that means he's doing great. If you're out there and you escaped this hellacious chain of violence, like good for you. Oh my gosh. You're a legend. I hope he's doing okay out there. Um, so too. Yeah. So for all this time, Charlene and Gerald had refused to speak and they had They had said nothing, nothing. They couldn't get anything out of these people. And so around July of 1981, which I think coincided with the authorities removing her son from her care. So I think for like the first six months, she was allowed to like, you know, breastfeed and care for the baby. They they weren't going to separate the mother from the son. And then I think at some point they determined that the infant was old enough to be put in her parents' care. And I Oof. think it was – I know, which they didn't do a great job with her. So I, I, I don't know – I don't know if I would give them a child, but – But better than her. Yeah. So they did get custody of the baby, her parents. Okay. But I think that that kind of clicked something in her head. You know, the trauma of having your child ripped away from your breasts. Like, 
of growing the baby inside of you and then having the baby and then having the baby for six months and then having them take it away, which she totally deserved, obviously. She yeah. can't raise a child in prison and she deserves to pay for what she's done. But I think that that moment of her losing her child um, really started to change the way she was thinking about her relationship with Gerald and how she was you know, staying mom on this and how she was going to maybe save herself so she would get a chance to know her child, you know? Yep. So finally, in February 1982, she hired two new attorneys with the help of her parents and asked them what they could do to get her out of her current mess. They countered by asking what could she offer to the police to broker a deal because that was the only way she was going to get out of this mess. Yeah, but she shouldn't be able to get out of anything. Well, no, she shouldn't. But if she's hiring attorneys, they have their job is to get her out of whatever they can get her out of, you know? I'm already fed up. <laughs> You're going to get so frustrated. So she ended up finally stepping over the gulf that would separate her from Gerald for forever. She revealed, we're not just talking about two kidnappings and murders here. Try 10. Her attorneys were shocked. The attorneys hired a private investigator to check out her story and slowly it became grimly obvious that it was all true. They contacted the authorities with bare bones info to begin the deal making process. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how they ended up making this deal. Okay, so Charlene was not prepared to be more specific, much less corroborate her story until a deal could be made. In spite of her cold-hearted willfulness as an accomplice to so many sexually motivated murderers and fear of her brutal husband and co-perpetrator, she was no fool. She still had her high IQ to draw on at times like this. She was not about to solve the police's crimes for them without getting something significant in return. Charlene and her attorneys had backed the prosecution into a proverbial corner. The prosecutor knew she was guilty as hell for her role in the kidnap and murder of Sowers and Miller, if only in luring them to their violent deaths with her innocent deadly charm. But why settle for two murders if they could effectively solve 10 cases of homicide at once? The idea took on a greater prominence with the Shirley decision by the California Supreme Court which in effect barred hypnotic questioning as a law enforcement weapon in the state. So basically they, the police at that point used hip, hypnosis a lot to help try to jog witnesses' memories. Okay. So they had used hypnosis in the testimony of the fraternity brother okay. to get more details about Charlene and about the car and about the guy in the car because I think he had obviously been drinking and stuff like that. And so his he was a little blurry on all the details. Yep. Thankfully, he got that license plate down. Yep. But because of the Shirley Act, his testimony was thrown out because they used hypnosis. Okay. For some reason, that also included writing down the license plate number of the Oldsmobile, which was ruled inadmissible in a court of law. Uh, so it's so annoying. It's so annoying. So that was like the biggest piece of evidence they had against Charlene especially. And if they didn't have that, then it was like kind of a shakier case. So if Charlene was going to come and admit to everything, then they'd at least get to nail Gerald, you know, mm -hmm. and potentially solve, you know, eight other homicides and missing persons cases because some of these bodies hadn't been found yet. 
So although the fraternity brother's testimony was not mandatory in getting a conviction, it certainly was a serious blow to the district attorney's sure bet case against the Gallegos. The best bet now seemed to be, albeit with much reluctance, to make a deal with Charlene before this whole thing somehow blew up in the prosecution's face. So the protracted negotiations between attorneys began. Charlene Gallego, who had decided to betray her husband and look out for number one, was about to essentially get away with murder and much more so are you ready to get like full-on angry um no (laughs) she eventually makes a deal to serve only 16 years and eight months wow for everything she can't get charged more than that that's the absolute maximum that's still better than i thought with you warning me that's like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have warned you so yeah. much. But if you like contrast that with Aileen Warnos, who was mentally ill and she was sexually and like horrifically abused as a child, and like she, you know, maybe shot some Johns, yes, but she was like executed. She was executed for her, and she didn't lure children and yeah. pregnant women to their rape and torture and, and death. death. Yeah. And death. And so it's like, to me, what Charlene did was so much worse than what Aileen ever did. Yeah. And I can't believe that she got out 16 years. But I mean, Aileen was in Texas, wasn't she? She was in Florida. Florida. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also, like, with the, you know, with the people who were prosecuting too and trying to find closure and resolution in all of the 10 victims and their families I feel like the trade-off for them probably was it made sense to them it's it's the most it's frustrating but it's the most compassionate thing to do to get answers yeah for the families and the loved ones of the other eight victims they get closure they for some of them they get to bury their loved ones you know yeah so, I mean, it's a terrible deal to make. You're literally making a deal with the devil because yeah. she's like the devil. But you're bringing so much peace to so many people that otherwise would have wondered for the rest of their life what happened to their loved one. Yeah. What about Gerald, though? Okay. So, meanwhile, armed with Charlene's testimony, Gerald was to face two trials, one in California for the kidnapping and murder of Mary Beth and Craig, and one in Nevada for the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Karen, Stacey Ann, Brenda, and Sandra. The California trial began in November of 1982, and Gerald, being the arrogant narcissist that he is, represented himself. Unreal. It's never a good idea. He, like, tried to pull a Bundy, but he was not as smart as Bundy. And Bundy didn't even pull a Bundy. It was stupid. It's so stupid. It was a spectacle. It was completely a spectacle. Obviously, Charlene's testimony was paramount to the prosecution's case. But remember when Gerald married Charlene not once but twice to ensure spousal privilege in the case of a trial? Well, it turns out the idiot had never legally divorced wife number two in his hurry to marry wife number three. So that immediately meant marriages three through seven weren't legal at all. So when he was worried about not divorcing wife number five fast enough, it didn't matter because he wasn't even legally married to number five. He was still legally married to number two this whole time. Wow. So he didn't file taxes or like anything. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Absolutely not. Absolutely not. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So 
The star witness, that being Charlene, appeared demure and harmless in a white lace Victorian blouse and black skirt on the stand. Absolutely innocent. During a three-hour and 15-minute direct examination by prosecutor James Morris, Charlene nervously detailed the saga of her relationship with Gerald, including tales of mental and physical abuse, bizarre sexual fantasies, and cold-blooded murder. She did her best to avert her eyes from Gerald, except when she discussed her jealousy concerning the victims and, you know, women that he dated that weren't victims of Gerald's. Although I think anyone this guy came and crossed was a victim. And the 1978 abortion, during which when she talked about those things, she fixed him with a hard and hateful stare. Yeah, after the prosecution was done direct examining Charlene, it was time for the real showdown. Because Gerald was representing himself, it was he who would be cross-examining his own wife. Oh my god. Ugh, I mean, this shouldn't be allowed. I mean, even if you represent yourself, like having... A murderer? If she really was. Like, imagine if she really was a victim and she really was a survivor. And then she And testifying. And testifying against him. And then the person who raped and tried to kill her got to cross-examine her. That seems desperately unfair to me, you know? So unfair. Yep. So uh, this is kind of the real showdown here. He got Charlene to discuss how much she had loved him, what drugs she had done with him, like basically trying to call in account of her, you know, testimony by saying she was a druggie. And recklessness, Um, yeah. Yep. And tried to get her to admit that it was in fact she who shot and killed Craig Miller, which she said she didn't. And we have no evidence to suggest that she did, but it's very he or she said, you know, because the only other witness to it is dead is Mary Beth. Yep. This was an accusation she steadfastly denied. On Charlene's fifth day on the stand, Gerald got her to admit to having a lesbian girlfriend in prison, and the interrogation devolved into what could best be described as a lover's quarrel on the stand. They basically, like, he was like, do you still love me? Do you still have feelings for me? It was, like, very bizarre and uncomfortable because it started, like, devolving into this, like, relationship fighting that the judge was trying to keep on track you know perhaps kind of to her credit Charlene appeared no longer cowed to Jerry she did however break down in tears as he forced her to read a Thanksgiving note she had written to him from prison only months earlier so I'm going to read that to you now uh, because I think it speaks volumes to how she really felt about him and about their entire relationship so Keep in mind, this the trial started at the end of November with jury selection. By the time she testified, it was early January. So she wrote this note just barely before the trial began. Okay. Happy Thanksgiving and may God be with you. Dear Jerry, I know it's been a long time, but with it being Thanksgiving time, I've been thinking of all I have to be thankful for and everything that God has blessed me with. A beautiful son, a loving family, and four years of the most beautiful memories in my life. Uh, Mm, What? (laughs) I love you. I always have and always will. I don't know if I'm supposed to, and I know nobody likes it, but I want to write it to you. I miss you so very much, and I love you with all of my heart. I'm tired of playing all these games, and through the Lord, I have learned right and wrong, love and faith, and to count my blessings. All my love, your pumpkin. 
Charlene. How did they find that note? She sent it to Gerald and he put it in as evidence against her and he made her read it in court. So, Ouch. Yeah. And so she cried when she read it and I'm sure she wasn't crying because she loved him so much. I'm sure she was crying because her cover was blown because that is not a woman who feels bad. If you say that those were four of the most beautiful years of your life – then you were enjoying what you were doing. Yeah, and he's that's your, disgusting. Your, he's your sadistic soulmate. You guys were enjoying what you were doing together. And to me, that note proves it. Yep. Eventually, the questioning concluded. And after Gerald uh, disastrously put himself on the stand, which did nothing to endear him to the jury. At the conclusion of the trial, the jury was given 24 options in deciding the guilt or innocence of Gerald Gallego. These included 16 possible verdicts on the murder charges and eight possible findings on the kidnapping charges. It was possible, if convicted of all of the special circumstances, that Gerald could face the gas chamber, just like his father did, though a long shot in such a traditionally liberal state such as California. On June 21st, 1983, after only two hours of deliberation, the jury said, fuck off and die, dirtbag, when they returned with a guilty verdict carrying a death sentence. Nice. I mean, Even California was like, kill this mother ever. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the Nevada trial almost didn't happen when some Pershing County taxpayers didn't want to spend $60,000 on a trial to convict a man who was already on death row in another state. So the taxpayers were like, why are we paying this money to, you know, convict this guy when he's going to die in California anyway? Like, isn't that enough punishment for him, you know? What about the family in Nevada, though? Exactly. So the authorities really wanted to hold the trial for a couple reasons. One, for the four teenage victims who, you know, their families wanted justice for their loved ones and their day in court. But also, number two, though Gerald was sentenced to death, it was extremely unlikely that California would actually execute him. He'd most likely end up in appeals until he died a natural death. So less liberal Nevada was happy to do the dirty job, essentially. Got it. So eventually the conflict made the national media and Pershing County was flooded with donations to offset the cost of the trial to the tune of 30 grand. Like so they people, covered half of the, the cost They covered of it. half of the trial. People around the country wanted to see this guy die so bad that they sent cash money. Written in the memo sections of checks were things like hang him high and make him pay. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Whoa. So the taxpayers were happy with that, with the little half-off deal. And the trial was back on. As if um, Nevada really needs, like, a tax break with all the money that they make with the casino. <laughs> the casinos and legalized prostitution. <laughs> yeah. Um, did they not – why didn't they do a trial in Oregon for Linda? I don't know why exactly that jurisdiction didn't get one, but there was a lot in the book about – them deciding where they were holding trials, where they weren't holding trials, which counties they were holding trials in because there was also victims in different counties in okay. California. Yep. And it was basically they decided to do it in the wealthier counties of two states. And Oregon only had one victim. So I think that they got like rolled in, unfortunately, with the okay. other victims. Yeah. So they did prosecute him for her murder, though. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I think – 
it was kind of supposed to be cold comfort to them that he was getting these sentences anyway. Um, and they were mentioned, I think, and all of the victims were mentioned in both trials, um, cool. but they weren't the focus of the trials, obviously. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So Gerald officially went to trial in Nevada on May 23rd, 1983. And although he didn't represent himself this time, seems he had at least learned one lesson, uh, that trial went <laughs> exactly the same way. The jury deliberated for two and a half hours and then sentenced him to death by lethal injection. So after sitting on death row for nearly two decades in the Nevada State Penitentiary in Carson City, Gerald was able to avoid execution when he died of rectal cancer on July 18th, 2002. Rectal cancer. Oh, that sounds terrible. That sounds terrible, but is the most karmic uh-huh. thing. Especially from a habitual sodomizing Sodomizer. rapist. Yep. Wow. Yep, he was 56 years old and mourned by no one. Oh, my God. Whoa. Yep. Charlene was released from prison in July of 1997 after serving less than 17 years, and she returned to her parents, who had raised her son while she was on the inside. According to a Reddit post from 2015, she was living in the Fair Oaks area of Sacramento, California, under the name Mary Martinez. So normally I wouldn't reveal people's new names, but like super fuck this lady. Uh, <laughs> so I don't care. <laughs> um, she was also like outed in an article in 2015. So I'm sure she's changed it since. She's I also think it's really weird because psycho. one of their victims was named Mary. Mary Beth, the last victim, you know. That's disgusting. Which is really, really concerning. So during an interview upon her release, she said, there were victims who died and victims who lived. It's taken me a hell of a long time to realize I'm one of the ones who lived. Fuck off. Uh-huh. Fuck you, Charlene slash Mary Martinez. Unbelievable. She is still victimizing herself. She's still victimizing herself. I saw in the uh, Wicked Attraction Mary Beth's father was on it, and he was like, she should have been punished. He's like, it makes our family sick that she's out there. She should have died, and I pray for her death every day. <laughs> and oh I don't blame him. God. I would feel I would feel the same way if one of my child's murderers was just walking free, enjoying their life. Yeah. Ugh. Well, she's not enjoying her life. She's obviously a miserable piece of shit. Yes, exactly. And so in um, in that same episode, the author of the book, R. Barry Flowers, he said that he doesn't think Charlene is like inherently dangerous by herself, yep. but there's definitely, if there's anyone in her life that becomes like an alpha who has any of those murderous ten tendencies, he doesn't hesitate to believe that she would pick up killing again. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that's the show. Jesse, that was so fucking intense. Dude, I know. Um, a little bit different than what we normally do, but it's definitely something that a lot of people have expressed interest in, um, hearing about the psychology behind these killer couples. So if you guys liked it, uh, definitely find us on social media at Love Murder Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search Love Murder Podcast on Facebook. Facebook and let us know how you feel and if there's any other killer couples that you really want us to cover or if there's any other just like really kind of 
more light, fair love triangle type cases you'd like to hear to do a palate cleanser. <laughs> yeah, we, we like those too. Um, and if you do have any ideas, feedback, comments, please, please email us uh, at lovers at lovemurderpod.com. Yes, we actually have next week coming up a case that two separate listeners requested. So I'm very excited to do that one next week. So um, cool. It's kind of a, a bigger name case. So I'm excited about that for sure. And finally, again, if you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. Ratings and reviews make a big difference to us and a big difference in helping new people discover the show. So we super appreciate it. In closing, this week was kind of brutal. So we really just want you guys to take care of each other and yourself. Stay safe. Definitely stay away from vans with scary people. But also remember to file your divorce papers when you're actually trying to marry someone else. (laughs) Very important. Even if you're not a murderer, that's pretty important. Yeah. Life lessons. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And pay your taxes. (laughs) Um, And usually... Generally, we say at this point, remember, we're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. Instead, in closing this episode out, I'll say for Charlene, remember, we're all just one bad relationship away from being a murderer. No! No! Definitely don't be a murderer. Okay, thank you guys so much. Thank you.